Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. Welcome everyone and good evening and thank you for coming along to the case study for Thin Black Line. Uh, my name is Fiona Trigg and I'm a curator here at ACME. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of this land on which we meet tonight and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and to any other elders who are here with us tonight. Um, we're going to move to a discussion with some of the key creatives from the Thin Black Line shortly, and there'll be a chance for you to ask questions as well. But um, before we begin, we'll have a short introduction from Marshall Hield, who's the Director of Television and Online Content at SBS. And then also we'll be joined by Joe Dillon, Head of Devel Development and Production at Screen, Screen Queensland. Um, SBS and Screen Queensland uh, commissioned the series Untold Australia, these three incredible VR works. And I'd just like to let you know that the three works are playing for the next few months down in Acme Screen World's free exhibition. We have a VR lounge down there where we rotate interesting new VR content. So if you haven't had a chance to see it through the conference and you're resident in Melbourne, you can come back any time over the next few months and view the works. So please welcome Marshall. Thank you. Hi everyone, uh, thanks for coming. It's wonderful to see you here at this uh, showcase of a really exciting new VR project. Uh, before I go on, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're gathered on today and pay my respects to elders past and present. So for more than 40 years, promoting diversity has been at the heart of everything we do at SBS. We want to see diversity on screen, we want to see diversity behind the camera, and we want to tell stories with underlying thematics that help Australians to understand that the greatest asset of this country is not what we dig out of the ground, but the diversity and differences of our people. We also want to keep innovating. We want to find new ways to tell stories, to evolve you know, how stories can be told. All great storytelling connects with us on an emotional level, and new technologies like VR enable us to place audiences at the heart of really intimate experiences to hopefully create a deeper understanding of the world in which we live, to create empathy and understanding. And so our Digital Creative Lab, run by JP, who's sitting down in the front row here, um, has a really sort of enviable track record in innovative storytelling, um, using new technologies like VR or voice recognition technology, and we've got a really exciting slate of projects coming out over the 12, next 12 months. Um, one of these projects is our Untold Australia VR series, uh, working together with, with Screen Queensland, um, which really explores the theme of displacement through a number of different lenses. And so tonight's showcase spotlights a thin black line which follows the story of director Douglas Watkins' own mother who was forced to evacuate during the 1942 Darwin bombings. Um, also included in the series is Every King Tide, which takes audiences on a journey to meet the people of a tiny island in the Torres Strait, which is slowly being swallowed by the sea. 
And the final documentary, which we launched uh, a few months ago, is called Inside Manus, which gives Australians a really rare insight into life on Manus Island through the personal experiences of three detainees. So look, I encourage you to check them all out through the SBS VR app. Um, so before I hand over, I do want to sincerely thank Screen Queensland, who co-funded this initiative with us. Uh, as well as funding it, we kind of walked hand in hand on this sort of new adventure in a new risky kind of area. And so I'm now going to hand over to Joe Dillon, who's the Head of Development and Production at Screen Queensland, to also say a few words. Uh, thank you all for coming. Hello. Thank you for coming. Um, I won't take up much more of your time because I know you're really here to listen to this lot. Um, but I would like to also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we meet on tonight, um, to thank AIDC and ACME for allowing us this opportunity to showcase this really exciting new work, um, and to SBS as well, who've been fantastic partners in this journey that we've gone on to make this Untold Australia series for virtual reality. Um, here is this uh, amazing team from Vertov and um, the writer-director Douglas Watkin, whose story this is. Um, one of the three films experiences which have been made through this partnership. Look, I think when we looked at all of this and thought, let's do it, and it didn't take very long <laughs> to come to that point of let's do it, which is another reason why it's great working with SBS. Um, I think we knew that these stories were going to be a chance to look at something which was experimental, technically and innovative here in Australia. That we believed, I think, that we'd find some great untold stories. But I think what we didn't really know was how emotionally affecting these stories would be on this platform. And I think you know, untold stories are sometimes stories which are made to be shared and felt. And this is a perfect example. A Thin Black Line is a family story, it's an indigenous story, it's a Queensland story, and it's a global story. And as such, it's the kind of story that connects us one to the other. And we at Screen Queensland are incredibly proud to have been a part of it. So I'll hand you over to these guys, but before they begin to speak, we'll have a look at the trailer. Thank you. I know that my hand is grabbing charcoal and doing a stroke. And that's, uh, at its core, that's what, that's what drawing is reduced to. In the VR, all of those strokes they all become animated, there's an element of movement and time. In terms of the translation of, of what I'm doing, I'm thinking that the end result is like a whole world of, um, of my drawings given a different kind of life to them. I'm just going to introduce the people on stage. Um, to my left here is Oscar Raby. Um, Oscar's an award-winning 
multimedia artist and the creative director of Vertov, the company that produced this um, VR work. Um, his virtual reality documentary, Ascent, from 2013, about the Chilean dictatorship, has been exhibited worldwide, including at Sundance New Frontier, um, IDFA, DocLab, and the Sheffield Documentary Festival, where it, where it received the Audience Choice Award for cross-platform. Sorry, <laughs> do I have to say all that again? <laughs> Oscar's great. <laughs> he makes VR. He's won lots of awards. <laughs> uh, um, Next to him, we have Douglas Watkin, the director of this work. Um, Douglas is from Cairns and has a long um, list of credits as a producer and a director in both drama and documentary. Um, most recently, the documentary feature film Ella, about Ella Havelka, the first Indigenous dancer to be invited into the Australian Ballet, a really fantastic film. If you have the opportunity to watch that, seek that out. Um, Next to Douglas, we have Vernon Aiki, um, whose drawings were used in this work. Um, Vernon is from North Queensland and identifies as a rainforest farmer person, um, most well known as a portrait artist and for his drawings. Vernon's also made text-based works and video installations. Um, he represented Australia at the 2009 Venice Biennale. His work was shown in the 2015 Istanbul Biennale and, of course, many other exhibitions around Australia and across the world. Um, and currently has work showing in the Adelaide Biennale, where I believe he's just been, says the show is good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and on the far left, we have Kalonika Quigley. Um, Kalonika is a 3D artist and games developer who has developed award-winning games both in small teams and as an individual. Um, she currently works as the lead 3D artist at Vertov, um, the studio, obviously, that produced this. Um, Kolonika has a fantastic website where you can see many examples of her beautiful artwork and the other projects and games that she's worked on in the past. So if you'd just like to help enjoy... Help, welcome the people. Okay, so I believe this clicker should click, click, <laughs> click the thing. Okay, Google, change the slide. Ah, did I do that? Ah, okay. Um, so while these four people um, are here tonight to talk about the work, they do represent a larger crew that Oscar wanted me to highlight. So just behind you on the screen, you'll see the many other people involved in this production whose work is represented by these four people tonight. Um, so I thought we might start by just talking to Douglas Watkin and just ask a little bit about the genesis of the um, project, um, the nature of the story for people who haven't seen the work and um, some of the inspiration behind the story and why you wanted to tell this story in a virtual reality form. Thank you, Fiona. And also I'd like to acknowledge any uh, blackfellas that are here in the room. Thank you. Um, firstly... This piece is actually part of a, um, uh, another piece called The Queen and I, thank you, <laughs> called The Queen and I. And that was actually a short animation that I did in 2011, which was actually my father's story. Mm -hmm. And years later, I thought, wouldn't it be great to actually focus on my uh, mother's side of the story? Um, I like to... Uh, place events like, for example, The Queen and I was set in 1954, 
uh, when the Queen first came to Australia and she was in the... Uh, my father was one of the drivers in the Queen's cavalcade. Uh, <laughs> like that, he was like driver number 13. And, um, you know, it, this happened in Cairns, you know what I mean? And it was kind of a, a, you know, a main event. But really it was... Um, the story was about how my parents met, you know, and if, if it wasn't for this event, they wouldn't have met and I wouldn't have been born, back to the future kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so I... And the style of animation that was used uh, was, like, kind of branching out, borrowing elements from the Phantom comics and all that kind of stuff, you know, and I kind of liked that line work. Fast forward years later, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to maybe pay tribute to uh, my mother? who was living at Darwin at the time. She was five years old, and uh, she was a part of the evacuee back in 1950, sorry, 1941, um, in December, around Christmas time, um, when they had to get out of uh, their hometown. They had to leave. And as you can see by the, the drawings, um, although uh, I, you do have Darwin, one of the photos was in Cairns, but I guess... Um, those are elements that we used. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I guess I had to tell that story because for us, like black followers, like we need to keep them stories alive, sure. you know, to achieve that. Sure. And I think the story of the bombing of Darwin is a story that's not as well known in mm. Australian culture as perhaps it should be because the impact was enormous, wasn't it? You there were... was more bombs dropped on Darwin compared to um, Pearl Harbor. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Pearl Harbor is well documented, but a lot of people don't know there was more ordnance dropped in Darwin, to give yeah. you an idea. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but your mum was a child during that time. She was only five. Yeah. Um, my mother is one of 14. <laughs> yeah, before TV, literally. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, there was actually five of them in Darwin, so my um, grandmother had to, you know, get six kids on a ship, right. and at the time it was only women and children. The men had to stay. Right. So they had to get up and leave. They only had about 24 hours to, you know, evacuate. And I just can't think of, like, you're a five-year-old, but even as a parent having six kids, I'm flat out trying to deal with one of them. You know, <laughs> that's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so these are some of the images that you worked with just to do your research. And did you share these images with the team when you started working on the show? Yeah, I guess like you know, us, like a lot of people in the room, we're, we're all storytellers, okay? And I guess as part of the research, some of these projects, like you know, whether it's VR or 2D or whatever, or, or live action, are a part of a bigger picture. Like uh, these images, like my mum... Uh, told the story, we actually did a documentary on her anyway. Right. So I thought, so what we've kind of done is we've kind of chosen elements or certain aspects of that story to translate into VR. So um, why did you make the decision to turn it into a kind of a narrative when you moved into the VR project and not just what, what was it about um, the story that you thought would lend itself to a more fictional telling rather than just a straight documentary? I guess for me, the, the VR, like, just what's, just picture yourself as a five-year-old being dropped in this world and looking up, because, like, we tell it from a five-year-old's perspective. Right. And I guess the, the nightmare of being a part of that, yeah. 
you know, and I guess it lends itself into um, that VR experience. So all the experiences that my mother went through and the horrors, mm -hmm. all of you guys will be able to experience that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we have some pictures. This is from the Queen and I. Yeah, that's actually from the Queen and I. So that was like, you know, the first, the, you know, the, the genesis of, you know, of this part of the storyline that I created. How long is that film? Uh, again, it runs about the same time as um, the VR. So about 12 so minutes, but this is just a, an, yeah. an animation. It's, just yeah. a, it's 2D animation, and I'm um, just getting inspiration from that. But I would say that it's not... Um, uh, it's not really a prequel sequel because, like, they both stand on, the, on their of own. Of course. That's the yeah, thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're, I like to say they're more like DNA strands of sure. the storyline. I wouldn't sure. necessarily say, like, this is yeah, the... Yeah, you know, things. yeah so. Um, so this work is based on, obviously, historical fact, but you chose, yeah. again, to kind of turn it into a, a beautiful story about the meeting of your parents in this historical event. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. thought it would be fun, you know, like, where were you, you know, on this particular day and all that stuff. And it was fairly significant, even as, it, like, putting in indigenous context, like, blackfellas, like, my father, like, um, sad to say, like, um, he was fair... And a lot of the places that he was allowed to, even with his cousins, and Vernon can probably touch on on this as well, is like they weren't allowed to go into pubs or bars or anything like that. My dad was, you know. Yep. And um, I guess um, at the time, being a black fella in 1954, and you're driving the car for the Queen, and he actually it, it actually happened um, by accident because. Uh, Majority of the soldiers obviously were from, you know, overseas and they were dropping like flies because of the weather in Cairns was so hot. So at the time, my father was a part of, um, well, he was a mechanic by trade, but he also, um, they did national service. So all those guys back then, you know, it was compulsory to do national service. So he had his uniform. So they said, well, what about you? What do you do? And he goes, oh, I'm just a mechanic. You got a uniform? Yep, sure. So put you in there. There's <laughs> so, yeah. a picture. So. Him. Yeah, so that was like my grandmother. And that's where he kind of you know, grew up in a place called Malay Town. Right. So, yeah. There's a picture of him driving the car. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really great. Um, so given that this film turned out so beautifully, and I do urge you to try and track it down, is it available online? I think, no, it's, it's like, it's like a, a, a gallery piece, I oh, think. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So if you have the opportunity to see it, it's really wonderful work. But having made this work out of your family story in such a beautiful kind of animation... Why, when it came to tell your mother's story, did you choose to go for VR rather than a linear film? And maybe you could just talk about that process of making that decision and pulling this team together to start um, the work. Challenge? Yeah. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> Headaches? No. <laughs> um, and obviously being attracted to the tech and the possibilities of right. the next wave or the future of storytelling, you know, right. how we can tell stories. And, um, yeah, well, regardless of what medium, you know, whether I'm doing short or long or features or EPing, I mean, like, I just love, you know, as, as long as, you know, you can tell a story, um, I guess it, it, it doesn't rely, like, it shouldn't have to matter what medium you use. I mean, you know, so, yeah. Not, yeah. So you just thought this story was a good opportunity to launch yourself into VR and see what happened? Well, it lends itself. It has a very visual, yeah. Right. Like, now it involved, yeah. yeah, so. Okay. Um, so, just um, talking to Vernon, how did that relationship... For, I know you two have known each other for many years and you're old friends, so you have an existing kind of language of communication and you know each other's work, but um, how did you approach Vernon about um, creating some of the visuals for this work? How did that come about? 
or maybe Vernon, you could tell us how did Douglas approach you? The visuals for the... How did he invite you to become involved in, in the Thin Black Line? Oh, well, we, we had been... Um, well, Douglas had mentioned to me uh, some years ago about the idea that he wanted to do a project that incorporated my drawing. Mm -hmm. And there's been a couple of ideas that yeah. we've been kicking around over the years. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. How can we collaborate? Because yeah. we've known each other for a long time. Right. And... Um, <clears throat> And so D Douglas, uh, actually, I think, I think Douglas rang me up and just said, I, I, I got the project finally. <laughs> this is the project. We, we have to do it. And he kind of just, he didn't barrage me into it. But, <laughs> but, he, but he, I, I think, he, I mean, he just said, you know, it's your drawing and VR. And this company is the best. <laughs> no, I basically rang her up and I said, Vernon, it's time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I did. That's yeah, right. I didn't that's what he describe said, what it was. I said, it's time. Yeah, he said, yeah. <laughs> that was the first thing he said. He said, it's time. It's time. <laughs> and, um, but, but I was also, I'm at the point in my career where I'm kind of up for anything. I'll give anything a go. And I just said, okay, all right, let's, uh, and then, and then, uh, then we then we had a meeting in Brisbane. That was yeah. the first time we all met. Yeah. And um, and I and uh, and after the first meeting, you know, it was really only to see if we could get on. And uh, because I was pretty sure I, I wanted to do it. Mm. Yeah. And um, you know, if they hated my guts, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so but, um, but, the pictures yeah. you can see on the screen here. Sorry, just for those of you who may not have seen Vernon's um, great documentary installation called The Tall Man, which looks at Palm Island and the events of the death of Cameron... Um, Domagy. Domagy, sorry. Yeah. Um, and the resulting kind of chaos on the island following um, the trial um, and the incident itself. So I just wanted to put these images up just to give you a sense that Vernon has a kind of keen sense of documentary in his own creative practice. Um, it's a really... Um, biting and fantastically kind of interesting installation. Um, but also, um, you're probably more familiar with some of his portraiture, which um, I was wondering, Vernon, do you also see portraiture as a kind of documentary or more like a kind of storytelling? Where do you think it sits? Uh, I, I do see it as a kind of um, documentary, actually. Uh, I mostly do portraits, almost exclusively do portraits of, of uh, my family. Actually. I've only done one portrait of someone not my family, and that was William Barrack, and it's in the collection here at NGB. Right. As uh, the only portrait I've done of somebody not my family, and so yeah, I, I do very much. There's, there's, there, there isn't a narrative to the drawings because they are people who are whole and realised to me. There's not even really a story to tell. It's, it's a. Uh, when, when I'm doing the portraits, I, I already know the story. Right. And, and what I'm doing is just recording them for my own sake, but also to, to give my family an idea of what, I, what, I, what these people mean to me. Right. And, and all of us, actually, all, the whole family. So. Yeah. yeah. And they're usually much kind of larger than life-size, aren't they? They're really... Yeah, uh, you work on a mostly, picture. yeah. yeah. I, I had a, a lot of the portraits I do now are... Quite, quite large, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, so they're kind of immersive for the audience. So VR is sort of the next step in one way of kind of taking a drawing and being able to step inside it for, 
for the audience? Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a there's a British painter who who makes really big paintings, and he he said that um, he was asked why he makes really big paintings, and he said um, it's it's the uh, the first best way for me to be in the painting right. while, while he's working on it, and I very much feel like that. But right. certainly the the tall man installation and other video installations that I've had. Are meant to be uh, immersive, so so yeah. So I, I suppose VR was kind of something that just came along that that just sat within uh, my my sensibilities pretty mm -hmm. well. Once I got my head around it, mind you, <laughs> had no idea what we were doing <laughs> until Kalonica was working her magic with it. And, yeah, There's a few so. more drawings. Um, okay, so speaking of um, Kolonika, here are some examples of her work. So Kolonika, I was wondering if you could just explain to us what it is that a 3D artist actually does. How do you define that? Uh, I guess my role is to make everything. So uh, the environment and the props and the characters, basically everything that you can see in the final product. So when you're working in games or in VR, are you often working with other people's images to start off with or do you also create your own images and environments? I guess like the traditional pipeline for a 3D artist is to take concept art from mm -hmm. a concept artist mm -hmm. working in 2D and translate that into 3D. Right. Mm. So you create things in a 3D space so that they can be moved around and and reflect the activity that's happening in that space in a realistic way or a way that's realistic for the world that you're creating. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're really a world builder. Mm. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you've worked a lot in um, games. So you're working with a game engine and that's the same technology that you're using in VR. Is that true? Yeah, so from my perspective as the 3D artist, it's not really all that different whether the project is VR or a video game, it's the same kind of pipeline, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so to you, Oscar, how did you get involved in this project? In this project? Yeah. Uh, we met with Doug at MIF 2016. We were just prior to starting this presentation, we were retracing our steps mm. and we realised that we met in MIF, at MIF 2016. Yeah. And what a year and a half later we are here. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was like, was pretty <laughs> so was, pretty yeah. quick. For um, we Thanks were we were comparing kind of the development cycle of yeah. Ela, which mm. took about four years, mm. and for us to go from from handshake to panel mm. was a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. It's, uh, it's been it's been pretty good. It's been pretty good to uh, to, for us it's quite natural to work in a game engine, which by its own nature, is an interactive platform. Right. in which actions happen. Right. Right? They're not pre-recorded and, and then performed by the machine, right. but they're established and then they're performed by the user. Right. Um, we take that as a natural kind of default baseline and then understanding the filmmaking tropes and the filmmaking approach, mm. which is the one that Doug has natural to his language, uh, was a good challenge, but mostly a good um, process to go into to, to make this work happen. Um, I think we have um, a trailer here from Ascent, so we might just play this just to give a sense of... Is this...? Yeah. 
It's a very short one. Some <laughs> abstract piece that I made. I don't know. Do we have <laughs> uh, just a quick introduction. Ascent is a VR piece that I made about my father being a um, military officer, part of the, um, the dictatorship in Chile, where I come from. Uh, and I worked in that project uh, during the best part of 2013. So that was my, my kind of my first steps into VR as a medium for nonfiction stories. And uh, it has a lot to do with how we connected in terms of um, how you carry these stories with you for years and years and years, even though the, that you were not part of, um, of the, you know, the initial seed of the story. Hi, Dad. I'm glad you could see this. I thought the instructions might have been a bit confusing, but here you are, so I guess it worked. I wanted to send you something real, and oddly enough, look what I came up with. Look around. If you stare at certain things for long enough, something happens. We're looking back to 1973. Right on this spot, you have just been notified of a court-martial taking place up the hill. But today, I want you to take the time you didn't take back then and stay with me for a little longer. To you, briefly, the core of the story is my father witnessing a mass execution in 1973 and how that marked his life as a human and as a professional and how that rippled into our family life and uh, the work that I do now. So as we can see from that trailer, and I'm sure you're aware, VR is very much a single-person user experience where you're able to control what you see by the movement of your eyes within the um, VR world and also through controls if it's interactive. So it's a very different kind of storytelling from a linear kind of tale. So I would just really love to hear, um, Douglas, how you said about thinking about the potential of VR with telling this story and how you kind of engaged in the writing process. Was that something you did on your own or did you work closely with Oscar to, to kind of create and shape the story, knowing that you would be able to offer people that level of interactivity? Yeah, well, we had like a, just a baseline kind of script kind of story. Well, obviously, you know, I had a pitch that, you know, I pitched to both Ox, um, Oscar and Katie, you know, just to follow. And then I guess um, Oscar was there whether it could interpret into VR, you know? So, yeah. yeah. And we kind of bounced around, you know, ideas. And, like, the, the through line, the, the story was always there. It was always about, you know, getting at a Darwin and and Oscar and team, we were just looking for ways on how that would translate into VR. And I guess um, 
uh, we worked really well. <laughs> like we, we, we're still here. We're still talking to each other now. Um, no, no, but um, I, you know, yeah. I mean, you want to add in the. Well, um, when you experience the work, you are actually mm. in the role of the what Douglas's mother as a young child. It's kind of her point of view. Was that always the way you had imagined telling that story? Yeah, or? definitely. It was yeah. always from my mother's. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. as a film director, it's very hard to kind of capture a point of view. You don't normally mm. get to do that. So, what kind of challenges did that throw um, for you? One of the, the challenges, I guess, because, like, for people here, I guess the directors, producers working in that kind of, you know, 2D linear format, um, in VR, um, as a director, you have to uh, surrender the camera. Yes. If that makes sense, if you, yes. you know, like that, because so, all of a sudden you don't have that control. Because now it's up to the viewer. Yeah. And so, how did you work with Vernon to pull together the the suite of drawings that you used as the kind of raw material? What uh, did you ask him to give you? He had access to my well photos as right. reference points of my family. And the thing is, like our families kind of grew up together anyway, so right. there's not much physical difference. <laughs> like, no, it's really not actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we have similar similar back backgrounds, so um, you know a lot of a lot of the photos that Douglas was showing me, they there was already a familiarity there. So and um, <clears throat> so um, it was easy to kind of move forward in the process and and kind of have um, Oscar just say, well, this is the next scene. These are the elements we need to capture and. And um, <clears throat> and it was all it was so so new. I had no idea, of course. And uh, but it was all really really exciting for me. What so, did you find exciting about it? Just the whole thing. Um, I, I was I, I was <clears throat> really excited at, at seeing what Kalonica would do with the the strokes and the marks and the shapes I was making and. Um, and I, I just thought it was amazing because I, I didn't know when when Douglas would tell me, you know, we're going to use your drawings and they're going to be animated and that, and that, and I, you know, I, I I could imagine quite a bit, but um, yeah, it turned out better. And there was, you know, there was always more things that um, the the team were adding in terms of atmosphere and and reach, and uh, and this is before all the sound went in and everything, mm. so. Yeah. So yeah, and and um, and even now, I, I just um, yeah, just grateful that these guys kind of pointed at me and said, "Do this." <laughs> Thank you for doing it. Burn an archie, hello. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. What about you, Oscar? Did you have to give um, kind of hints to Douglas and Vernon about the kind of elements you thought would work well in a VR world, or? Yeah. Um, we had two very clear pathways with both of them and right. clear in hindsight. It's right. not like we defined them and we followed through all the way to the end. We were discovering them together. Right. And the two clear pathways were one, uh, understand how we move from this linear script yeah. onto one that allows and propitiates and supports interactive instances, interactive moments in which you're connecting with the character through an action, not just what, what happens inside the frame, but what you're actually yeah. doing which is something that we deeply believe in the work that we do. Mm -hmm. You get a different sort of ownership of the story, sure. different access to the characters inside world when you do something that they're doing directly. 
So that was the conversation regarding the narrative development. In, in terms of the aesthetic treatment and the aesthetic development itself, it was going back to the uh, foundational elements, which is to say basically the big question of how do we move drawing from a 2D medium to a 3D medium? Mm. What happens with the fragment? How do we keep the sense of carbon on canvas in a, in a medium that you know, is basically light switching on and off? Yeah, because mm. it's not, you haven't gone down the path of traditional animation. Like right. you didn't take Vernon's drawings and turn them into animations so much, did you? That's not how you would describe what happened, or? Um, well, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, Kalonika can <laughs> speak to that. Well, I guess for me, I was thinking about it more as turning it into sculpture. Right. So they're all quite static, but are drawn in to appear and drawn out to disappear, yeah. Right. Mm. Um, we're gonna yeah, hear- Yeah, that, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just put it in a machine and it comes out. That's, <laughs> that's right, yes. Um, we're gonna hear a little bit more from Kalonika in a moment about that process, <coughs> but I'm just, I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you know, the opportunities for offering audiences interactivity, because it's a big change from writing a documentary or a drama where it's mm. a linear process. Um, what kind of, what limitations or excitement did you find from having that opportunity? Were there things you wanted to do that you realised you, you couldn't do in VR or, you know, things that maybe Oscar suggested that you suddenly thought, oh, that would be amazing. I mean, how did you go about... Planes. More planes. More, More planes. planes. Sorry. But working out at what points the audience yeah. gets to interact with mm. the imagery and at what point the story just carries the audience member along. Yeah. Um, I guess coming off The Queen and I, like having already worked in short animation, I kind of use that same work template for the thin black line because, you know, obviously we've done... Um, uh, voiceover work. I mean, the actors uh, that we had in there, we had like Aaron Faso, you know, right. from The Straits. Yep. Uh, we had Jimmy Barney, who was a right. Marbo, you know. Right. So, yeah, so we had the, this one. I mean, there's a big list of people, you know, that worked on this work. And yeah. not just the voices, but the sound design as well. The sound design, it was, it was like a, a collision of different worlds because I was bringing on some of my guys and your guys and all that stuff, like, yeah, my sound, and then go through you guys. And, um, Trying to, I guess, having trying to form a, a visual language and hopefully uh, develop some sort of shorthand between ourselves. Yeah, so we weren't so, you know, yeah, because um, this this was my first VR. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Well, I love the fact that um, because you're embodying a child um, throughout the piece, mm. and you have a remote control, and you can sort of see the arms of the child at times during the work. And there's a few things you can do, like you can pick up a doll that's kind of a central um, figure, and you can move the doll from side to side. So while the story is happening around you, you can mm. be playing with the doll, and it really evokes that sense of being a child and having your own world yeah. while you're aware of the adult dramas that are yeah, going around with innocence. you, and you can move yeah, the doll yeah. and see her plaits move and her legs move. It's yeah. a really beautiful thing to do while the story is going. And I'm wondering, how did you come up with that idea? Well, Oscar? Just seeing the pictures. Yeah. Ah. It's like, um, <laughs> it's on the script. Yeah. <laughs> um, just seeing the pictures and, and, and trying to understand what could be the token mm. of, yeah. of, 
of shifting scales, yeah. which is basically you are being sheltered by your family, but then there's something bigger that's affecting them. Mm. How can yeah. we move that one yeah. scale down so you do the same with this token? Right. And that was the door. Right. Um, and maybe you could talk about some of the other moments where you, where the audience person can interact with the, with the right. work. So hopefully it's not a spoiler, but um, <laughs> yeah. it, will, it will be. Um, yeah. That if you interact with the doll, <laughs> once we found that the, the mm. doll has been that visual and narrative device all in the one, you know, uh, asset, in the one prop, um, we realized that there was an opportunity there to do that shifting of scales with the father being uh, sheltered by you. Right. So it, it's very simple kind of matching of what you do with the doll is, some, is the opportunity for you to do with your father. Right. Which again, in, 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 in the universe that we created, it's, yeah. um, it's, a, it's a dreamlike sequence. Um, but it wants to be that thing of, of, we talked about, when we were talking about what it meant, yeah, yeah. it was that um, kind of, coming of age moment in yeah. which you know that you you might be sheltered but now is your uh, kind of goal you have the opportunity to provide that shelter mm -hmm. to someone else and mm -hmm. it so happens that is your father mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the queen and I was based on the relationship between the mother and son this one was based between the father and the daughter this time so yeah so that was one of the three lines um, or yeah that kind of connects the piece and um, as they evacuate from Darwin, there are uh, moments in the journey where um, you can interact and affect the kind of time scale of the journey. Would you like to talk a little bit about why you chose those moments to introduce interactivity into the story? Um, I guess, like, especially when boarding the boat, I really right. wanted to have that strong kind of... Because at the time, my uh, mother and her siblings were getting on the boat and... The father, they were trying to look for the dad and the, the, my, my granddad, he uh, came running towards them with the doll and, and, well, actually, sorry, well, in real life, he came running towards them and the guards had their bayonets and said, nah, don't cross this line or whatever like that. So they, mum remembers uh, seeing her parents kiss behind the soldiers and right. then getting ripped apart mm. at the same time. Mm. So, yeah, and, and there was a lot of confusion and I guess having that moment, I mean, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the moment the moments yeah. that that we kind of um, let time pass mm -hmm. mm. under your control or be be stopped by your action or lack of um, sometimes are are about looking around and taking it in for a second extra than than what the kind of the, the filmic time wants to dictate. Um, that said. It is written and is, and is created as a tragedy. You are going there and you're advancing relentlessly. But the thing is, as it certainly seems to happen, you, you might know that you're going to have a bad time or you know mm. that you have some expectations in your planning uh, for your day, for your, you know, the time ahead. But at some point, you get the chance of feeling that life carries on right. without your intention and without your planning. Right. And these moments kind of bring about that sense of, Maybe there's a way, you know, out. Even, 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 there might not be one. <laughs> it's illusion. It's illusion. That's what I'm saying. That yeah, yeah. that uh, sheltering father is not something that's going to save father. And, and and probably I'm trying to make a savior for you to talk about your father in real life today. Um, but but that's kind of the um, 
the, the intention narratively. Mm. Mm. Your father. Well, your it, father. it jumps to a kind of metaphorical level at that point, yeah. doesn't it? You know, yeah. There are certain uh, parallels that are happening, uh, I guess, with all, uh, I mean, you know, and, and Vernon will tell you, I guess, you know, um, when you make art or films or anything like that, you, you put yourself in there, but also what is happening currently in your life. Uh, my father at the moment is, uh, he has dementia, and uh, my mother, they had to have a forced separation because we had to inter uh, put him in a home. Yeah, so, and I guess you see that separation come through the uh, thin black line between the father and the daughter. Oh, sorry, the, I'm getting confused now. Yeah. Getting emotional, sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> Well, um, maybe at this point we might throw to Kalonika, who's going to present a small presentation within this presentation, which just gives you some more visual detail about um, the work that she did, taking Vernon's drawings and putting them into the 3D world. So if we can throw to Kalonika's presentation, thanks. So I'm just going to take you through some of our journey defining the visual style of the project and we, how we translated Vernon's work into this VR experience. So as we've already mentioned, it's a real-time interactive 3D piece um, that we've made in a video game engine. And because that's the tool we use, that's often the language we use while we're developing this uh, project. Um, Working in game engines, it working in a game engine has a lot of like forces a lot of assumptions of what kind of project you're trying to make, whether it's like fun, light entertainment uh, that might have certain mechanics or uh, realistic graphics, and if that's left unaddressed, then the game engine itself is the aesthetic. Um, and we at Vertov really don't want our work to look like traditional video game. And a large part of how we approach this is to simply draw our inspiration from outside the digital medium altogether. So here's a few examples of video games that do this. And by using the language of a physical medium to communicate to their audience, the work has a distinctive, attractive identity. Although sometimes it seems impossible to bring these physical elements into a th digital 3D space, it forces us to really focus in on what we are trying to represent. If we can only represent the bare minimum, what is it about charcoal that makes it appear like charcoal? We can't escape the digital nature of our medium, but we can create an illusion. We can aim to evoke the memory of the physical world. Vertov explored this in our previous project, uh, the Turning Forest, where we worked with illustrator James Gilliard. So his work is very like 60s, 70s um, graphical style with um, bold flat colors. And it was an interesting challenge to translate his very 2D work into VR, the best digital <coughs> representation of 3D space. So an important part of our process was to pull out the repeating shapes, patterns and colours and consider how we could reconstruct the space with just those elements. With Vernon's charcoal work, we were ex exploring an entirely new art style, so we had a whole new set of problems to solve. 
Charcoal is a medium that relies on the friction of the charcoal connecting with the canvas. By its nature, the medium is kinetic, reactive, and gestural. Part of the artwork is the evidence of the time and energy it took to create. A key feature of Vernon's style is how he creates the impression of volume and detail using the density of line work. It appears as though the lines have pulled together to form the face, and as though it is irrelevant, the rest of the figure fragments away, exposing the lines used to construct. These ghostly dark forms are even more revealing in the way the density of the strokes has been used to create volume. This artwork was the starting point for me as I began to consider how this would work spatially in VR, translated from 2D to 3D. It's clearly constructed from individual strokes that intersect and build up to create form, so it made sense to start by exploring in that direction. So in our first little experiment, I just uh, literally reconstructed this piece with lines suspended in space, and this started to give us an idea of the effects of volume, depth, and perspective, but this was losing the initial elegance of Vernon's piece because the lines sort of stuck out aggressively at you and invaded your space. It also looks obviously digital, and our aim was to reduce those elements, and though it sounds impossible, try to remove them altogether. We wanted to include the imperfections and irregularities that are such an integral part of this physical medium. These TV show opening titles are messy and explosive to mimic the debris of war and highlight how dynamic the medium can be. The differences in weight, texture, friction, pressure and pace and the resulting dust, density and fragmentation, all these subtle elements beyond the static final piece. An integral part of our pre-production was an in-person workshop with Vernon to identify the qualities of the medium and discuss the process and intent of his work. Even the simple strokes pictured here gave us so many answers of how he would approach our experience as an art piece. We looked at the charcoal itself, all different kinds, and how much they can vary even within the same type. We looked at the way it reflects light and how that could be used as a way to add color to our black and white experience, as well as make the line work appear more tangible and present as it reacts to the viewer's presence. We also looked at different kinds of paper and canvas and the drastic effect that can have on the charcoal. So here is a soft uh, canvas that makes the charcoal smear and has a kind of um, cloudy look and a harsher canvas causes the charcoal to break and be more scratchy. And the resulting debris from every stroke, how would we represent that in our project? Every moment of this workshop was so valuable to us as Vernon exposed how the scenes could be revealed, the pacing, how much pressure in the lines, all these subtle elements we could include to help it feel authentic. Later on in development, Vernon uh, created this series of swatches for us. They're just simple sketches demonstrating different strokes and gradients with the intention of exposing the elements he uses to construct his work, but also for us to literally take these pieces and bring them 
into the VR experience. To me, this highlighted the difference between working with a fine artist compared to a digital artist. A traditional concept artist is already considering how their work will be translated into 3D, already working within the digital restrictions. But an artist familiar with a physical medium isn't held back by these restrictions. They use a different language and therefore bring new elements and textures, new qualities that can craft new identities, tell new stories, and evoke feelings that are not commonly explored in digital experiences. And for us, the developers, that means new problems to solve. Returning to the computer, here I've tried to piece together the minimum elements needed to create a convincing charcoal stroke. So this is just a photograph of one of Vernon's um, strokes and then it's masked off and has a particle effect. We wanted to capture the process of drawing, not just the final static image. We started to think about how the strokes would exist in 3D space. Is each stroke a flat plane or does it have its own volume? Will the world be constructed like a pop-up book with lots of layers? And how will it move? Like we discussed before, would it be like a hand-drawn animation or are they more like sculptures? Here we've started to look at how we would apply Vernon's swatches to 3D models. The underlying model has a, a regular sil silhouette and the tone is imperfect to help give the impression of a hand-drawn image. And of course, one of the biggest questions from the start of this project is how would we translate Vernon's 2D portraits and, and apply it to a 3D model? Due to the intricate and precise nature of Vernon's strokes, they're very difficult to imitate. So here I've pulled out the features of one of his existing works and erased everything between. We then apply it to the 3D model and add the crosshatch back on over the top. And this is when something clicked and it felt like we were getting some of the features we had identified at the start. This is beginning to give the impression of a net of strokes that have been layered to create density and depth. <coughs> and as we discovered in our workshop, adding specular highlights helped make the charcoal seem more tangible. and also identifying the transparent edges that's so unique to charcoal. In this example, we were trying to make it appear as though the 3D world was being drawn by hand and with, a, with an impression of gesture. We saw this as a way to move from scene to scene with the environment drawing in and out as though part of one compos composition. We wanted to keep it as minimal as possible while still grounding the objects and giving the impression of depth, volume, and atmosphere. And this is how the project looks in its final form, a combination of all the things we'd learned. Thank you.
Thanks, Klonika. And I think you, if you haven't had a chance to see the work, you can see from those video clips the really beautiful experience of watching Vernon's drawings move and come to life. I mean, it's quite hypnotic. Apart from the incredible story, just the being inside that world of drawing is a really beautiful um, experience. And what was it like for you, Vernon, to start to see those lines that are so much a part of your body and your practice kind of take on a movement given by someone else? What did that feel like? Well, for me, it was, it was um, it, it really enjoyable you know, to have your work animated like that, but, but completely familiar. I was surprised. I, oh, okay. I thought there wasn't any part of it that I didn't recognise, right. really, which is the point. And, uh, and some of the, uh, like the transitional scenes where things just start appearing, I just, when I first watched those back, I was just thinking, oh, this is how I would do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> At really fast speed, but... <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, yeah. We, which was the point, because we, 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 we spoke about that, yeah. Oscar and I especially, you know, talking about, you know, the, uh, the, the order of the strokes and, um, and, and a whole, within a drawing process, this goes first, then that, and, mm. and to end off a drawing, this, these last strokes are these. And, and, uh, and so that's the way the whole process is animated. So it looks very familiar to me. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's very hypnotic and, and so beautiful to be yeah. inside that world. Also, it's like walking in an art gallery as well, you know? Because yeah. you get to see where it starts, you know? Because I guess with most uh, final, like the output, we see the final product here, you actually see it getting made. Yeah, that's right. It's actually getting constructed yeah, as you yeah. watch it. Yeah, it's yeah. like sitting yeah, there, sitting there watching someone else do my drawings. Colonica <laughs> <laughs> doing my drawings. <laughs> We can yeah. all be replaced by machines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. AI. Well, not quite yet, anyway. <laughs> not yet. Um, yeah. So maybe you spoke before about having to relinquish the single camera eye that you're used to having as a director. Um, maybe, Oscar, you could help us work out a little bit about the process of um, sort of storyboarding for VR. I yeah, think we, have we work some with images. a great artist. Um, he actually had the opportunity to work on another VR piece, uh, or Orbital Vanitas, which you might be familiar with, oh, yeah. by um, Sean Gladwell. Yeah. And uh, he discovered there this method. So he um, was very keen on, on sharing it with us, and we were very fortunate to be able to, to incorporate it in our methodology. So the, the, the method that Jack Nesbitt um, has is, I don't know if you can see on that screen, there are faint, there are faint lines behind the, the drawing that describe a cube opened up, the way you would do some sort of origami. So don't, just behind the, the tallest cloud, you can see one of the squares. So picture that is an open cube. In that cube, just look, um, like you would do in an origami piece, wraps around you. And that way we could map what would we see in each one of these kind of quadrants, um, multiple quadrants. And uh, that helped us understand what were the narrative kind of compass points. What was happening uh, north, which would be your main center of attention, what was happening south, which in, that, in, in each narrative moment uh, would be complementary to what was happening north. 
and sometimes we would play with with maybe nothing happens north. Ten percent of the in intensity of the narrative weight happens south, but you have most of the things happening in front of you. Yeah, uh, with the method that that we're looking at on the screen, we were able to to very quickly move and remove objects and play with the with the balance of that. So even though we have to, you know, give away, which is a good thing. Uh, camera work and even editing when mm -hmm. we work with interactive moments. Mm -hmm. So in editing, I'm talking about time-based editing. So when, when do we cut? We also gain the chance of um, suggesting. You know, the chance of right. suggestion as a tool, a narrative tool, is something that we are gaining. Yeah, it's not everything is kind of tamed, but it's laid out. Um, yeah, which sometimes we, we, we kind of refer to it as a designing a, a dinner party. You can put the plates, and uh, and then the experience that each one of the the um, guest has is different. But you are suggesting that this is the order that you want them to enjoy the experience. So here you can see that what, what I was talking about before. Everything is pointing towards that north, and that north in this sequence is a dynamic north. So the family that you need to follow is keeps keeps changing. And that means that you need to keep following them. Everything else was blocked out. So yeah, the way we are looking at it uh, right now, it resembles a traditional storyboard. But what it does is actually is a surrounding um, story sphere. Yes. Of sorts. Yes. And um, did you find it easy to get into that way of thinking, Douglas, of that you were in the middle of a 3D circular kind <laughs> of sphere? Yeah, yeah, pretty much so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, obviously it has challenges, but at the same time, you know, once you get your head around it, yeah. Yeah. No pun taken, but yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good title for a new piece. Yeah, we should do another. Yeah, yeah. Let's do another. Get your head around it. <laughs> I was going to mention that because we keep finding it in in these dialogues, in the creative dialogues, in the technical dialogues that once we establish a common ground with the medium that's your, I'm gonna call it the, the, your mother tongue, right. you know, you, the, the yeah. natural language that you use creatively, say storyboarding for filmmaking, we can, we can meet there. That's middle ground where we can meet. Right. I'm seeing it as a, like I said before, just a silly name, story uh, sphere, meaning that I'm, in my head I'm, I'm thinking, right, that end meets with the other end mm. every single time. Yeah. But when we meet in the middle, we treat it as a storyboard. So we know that this has another sequence, another frame that comes after that, and we talk time-based, the time-based conversation. And how many of these kinds of drawings would you create for the work? Hey, what was it total? Oh, 30, 30 something? Yeah. yeah. They were, they were yes. kind of big, big um, sets uh, per beat, per narrative beat, right. and then sub frames per change, right. kind of big visual changes. Mm. We put a lot of attention yeah. um, on transitions. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. kind of our, where we, where we put our, yeah. kind of our money, Where's our creative budget. Point? Yeah, like yeah. How are we going to move from one place to another? Yeah. There's or lead this. the viewer to, yeah. yeah. Yes, how, do you, how did you approach that? Sound. Sound, That's yeah. one of them. That's yeah. the other one you reckon. Uh, that thing that I said before, like how do you, mm. how do you manage the north? Right. Being in your right. center of attention, if you want to support that center of attention, what do you do with the other card cardinal points? 
Do you make it exclusive? Do you make it something that's kind of um, either diluted or with, with um, kind of equalized centers of attention? So whatever you look, it's pretty much saying the same thing narratively. So if you had the, the central viewer focused on that porthole and you wanted to attract their attention to something behind them, you would use sound to get them to turn around and mm. see what was happening. Yeah. yeah, what you're bringing up is at that time we had yeah. a... Christmas being one of the themes yeah. of the story, mm. there was this um, Christmas carol coming from, from the um, porthole. Mm. Yeah. So that was very kind of faint... Yeah. But and this is one of these this kind of invisible tricks of interactivity, which is not necessarily, okay, now you need to put, push a button to choose A or B. Mm. In this case was when you look at it, it's tied, it's linked to the mixer. So when you look towards a porthole, all the other tracks, you know, the singing and the soundscape all goes down right. and you hear the Christmas carol. Right. Just that. Right. So it's pretty subtle directional. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you can do lots with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good tool to have. Yeah. And even though you're in control of the character, the character isn't really in control, doesn't really know what's happening, because as a child, you know, it's like an observing, like, what's going on? Like, the mother's telling the kids, let's, like, let's have Christmas carols, you know? They're on a big ship. Like, most of these guys, are, like, it was funny how they're on a cruise liner, you mm. know? And I remember my mother kept on, like, her... Mother kept on saying, oh, we're going on a big ship now, everyone. Let's get on the big ship, you know what I mean? So she was kind of sheltering from, you know, even though they knew something was up, so they were singing Christmas carols. And I remember uh, the story my mom kept on talking about, like, she remember seeing the Christmas tree on the ship, you know, and it was dark because I had to turn all the lights off or whatever. So, yeah, and the only thing that was lit was the tree. Um, so, Colonica, when you were working on creating the world, how did you go about deciding how full or empty to make the imagery? Because it's, you need enough to evoke the world, but obviously you don't want to overwhelm people with detail. What, did you work with Vernon on getting that aesthetic right, or was it the story that sort of dictated that? Um, I'd say that it was pretty tied into what we were just talking about, right. the, uh, directing the user's attention um, towards important narrative views. Yeah. Um, and Vernon's work is quite minimal anyway, so it kind of made sense, like, why include pieces of the environment that have no narrative weight? Right. So it's just the elements that you need to see that you can see. Because there is a beautiful sense of sort of floating through, through the work. Mm. I wonder, Vernon, when you were watching it along the production process, did you ever want to kind of add in more detail or pull things out or? Um, <clears throat> nah, not 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 as far as adding more detail because um, because we we talked a lot about the elements of the story and, and they were all there in, in right. the script and, and in the storyboard. So <clears throat> it was a matter of, of um, following that and, and it was just, you know, everyone using their, their own best judgment, really. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, and uh, well, it was up to Kalonica's um, animation to 
kind of make all the all the transitions smooth so that it didn't look mechanical or anything and they you know that that was important as well yeah but but really really for me i i lean more to a very minimal aesthetic so so the hot the finished the finished product especially suits me yeah. <laughs> it lo- looks looks like i did it so <laughs> but you, it's good yeah, yeah. You well, know, the, so. f- the film is quite I mean, the story is quite confronting and there are some um, traumatic events in it, but the mood of the piece is incredibly gentle. Mm. And I'd love, Douglas, if you could just talk a little bit about how you kind of arrived at that tone. Like, did, did you at first think that the story should be more dramatic or less dramatic? Like, how did you arrive at the sort of final, calm, delicate quality that the work has well I guess um, I just I just have my family to thank for that because the way how they tell the story you know because that's right. what we were oh, portraying okay. real yeah, life yeah. you know yeah, that's, right. yeah. Um, we didn't want the bombing to be a, a gimmick or anything like that um, but we knew that was I mean I guess I'm glad it wasn't exactly the centerpiece whatever mm-hmm. to the work and I guess um, the the tone of it, again, it's seen through the eyes of a five-year-old. That's the thing. So yeah, because it's I guess we're trying to portray that um, innocence, you know. And it's kind of funny, like, you know, I go to daycare and I pick up my son, and I, you see five-year-olds running around. You think, wow, you know, just imagine you just look at a five-year-old and you think, geez, you know, they were g- sure. getting on a boat, you know, getting transport or getting taken away. But um, you know. War, I mean, a, a lot of people, they focus on not, like, war through the soldiers. I mean, you know, what happens to the people that they leave behind or the impact? Yeah. And I guess, you know, Oscar and I, we shared the same, had similar DNA traits, you know, having both fathers, you know, or even grandfathers going through uh, post-traumatic stress. Sure. And especially for a lot of black fathers back then, they didn't know exactly what it was. My grandfather, I think, um, sadly, that's probably why you know, my family's become a bit fractured in some way because of that, because they just didn't know what it was or what they were dealing with at that time. So, yeah, so... Yeah. Yeah. So, um, VR is sometimes called an empathy machine, which is a phrase I don't really... Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about this. I don't like. (laughs) But um, uh, I'm just, you know, in... But in its favour, it can be very immersive and very atmospheric. What do you think, Oscar, that you can achieve with a story like this in VR that adds something that you couldn't achieve in a more traditional storytelling mode? What do you think about VR? What is it about VR that adds? Two things. One very practical, which is undivided attention. Until right. we get, you know, the advertising, you know, pop-ups and whatnot. Right, right, right. Before then, let's enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be awful when we get yeah, there. Yeah. But anyway, for now, undivided attention, right. which is yeah. a, for content makers, yeah, awesome. Uh, and I guess for branded content as well. But that's not my world, so yeah. uh, not my problem. But what I mean is um, for the user, the, ac- the actual, you know, person that's going through the experience being able to say the equal of when you open up a book in a public space, most likely you won't be bothered. People will understand the gesture, the social gesture of, you know what, I'm on my own and I'm having time with myself. 
with the headset, we get that. So mm -hmm. being able to spend time with the story, in the story world that we are sharing with them, with undivided attention, yeah. beautiful. Everyone will have a different experience with the work, you know? Like even though it has, what, a duration of about 10 minutes, people could spend longer in there, you know, right. and just take it in. Right. And um, just, you know, yeah, immerse themselves. And, and others will like flip through, try to get to the end, because they believe there's an A and there's a B, but others will just, you know, explore. And, and as I said before, everyone in the room who has experienced it will have a different perspective or a different take, or all will take away a different, um, feeling or emotion from it. But that's the same with a linear film, isn't it? That's true. That people will bring their own experience to it. Mm. But you like the fact that people are in their headset? Do you... That they're kind of fully immersed in, in the work? I think the thing about VR, it's, it's developing technology. It's really exciting, I guess. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. But, but there is... Um, the thing about the thing about Bertolt is that we work with interactive VR, right? right? And, right. and the current state of VR has two main flavors: sure. the 360 film, mm. not VR, and interactive <laughs> VR, <laughs> real-time game-based, uh, game engine-based. Yeah. Um, when we do things, you know, even even the minimum, the minimal engagement of just changing um, the framing, that you do that, not the camera person, yeah. not the camera operator, not director, not the editor, but you do it yourself, mm -hmm. um, is the illusion of engagement, which is quite different than staring at a film. Sure. So yeah, we can say it is pretty similar to film. I think, yeah, I connect with that character. I think and I, um, and I kind of vicariously feel that their life is something that I can you know, connect with. But the illusion of engagement, of direct engagement with something, which, which is to say holding the hand of a character, and actually, if you let go of that hand, something narrative happens. Right. Not just practic practical in, in, you know, in your physical reality, but actually in narrative space, mm. that's a different engagement. Just talk about the schedule a little bit, how it breaks down between how long Vernon's artwork takes to create as opposed to then translating it to the 3D elements. How long yeah, does your work take? Well, I, I, I live in Brisbane mm. and Vertov is here in Melbourne and Doug's travels around the world being wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I, I think if if we, honestly, if we were all uh, here or in one location, or all of us, um, it would have been pretty quick, I reckon. Would it would have been maybe mm. a few months, the whole project. I I think, but because, and I and I really only had, uh, apart from the swatches and stuff, I really only had two four weeks so it was very much um, Oscar saying Vernon is just saying do this and then we'd look at please sources. I said please every single time <laughs> <laughs> please do this please do this <laughs> and uh, but but it was also it's also uh, myself you know kind of tapping um, Kalonica on the shoulder and Brad over here uh, saying, you know, um, what happened? What's with this? What? What about this? And uh, but that—that's when I was here, 
Yeah, so, uh, but I, I think if I had a, a couple of months um, here, uh, we, we could have done. Like, we're, we're even now when I look at um, the, 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 the product, I just think, oh, yeah, I could have done that or could have done this. But mind you, there's a heap that I could not have done. So that, that's down to Kalonica. But, um, but that's, that, that's my thinking. Yeah, well, we, we could have um, could have produced something very quickly. And, um, and, that, and that's very interesting to me. Uh, given, given that Doug had already done the work in terms of research and the story and the storyboarding was already done as well. So I kind of, I, I, I'm pretty sure I was dropped into the middle of the project, not the beginning. So, yeah, that, that's, that's my take on it. Yeah, because of that and being in different sites, um, this project had big components in Queensland, big components here yeah. in Melbourne. Uh, we wanted to have a few anchoring images from Vernon, straight from his hand onto the, um, you know, the boards, but also a big collection to draw from. Is that a pun? That's not a pun. No. <laughs> Second language, right? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so, yeah, a big catalog of, you know, mild strokes, mm. faint strokes, curved strokes, um, you know, harder use of charcoal, softer use of charcoal, softer material, harder material, and we, we got lots of that from Vernon in a way to, to, make, it, to make it like a, like a database that we can access to create these different um, components that Colonica created. Also, it comes down to experience, you know, because we have, again, a, you know, a shorthand between ourselves, you know, like, you know, most of us have worked on, you know, a lot of major product, you know, mm -hmm. projects, sorry, and, yeah, so just having that, I don't know, that shorthand of understanding, I mean, you know, like, I don't know, I can't think of anything that went <laughs> down, no? <laughs> like, it's oh, it all was, good. It was, it, it was yeah. that, but, all, but we were all, we were all um, committed to it. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, I, I probably had the least understanding of the process, so because of that, um, if, if Oscar said, try this, I, I'd say, yeah, okay. And it, well, that was wonderful. And Because no, Oscar would say, you know, do you want to try this? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm here, you know, yeah. let's give that a go. Because we, we had, you know, we had very long days that, I, I, that none of us minded, actually. Mm. I really want to attest I, to, I, I you, to your so. openness, cool. your openness, Vernon, to get engaged and go for it. I was beautiful to work with. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it comes down to experience, seriously, like, because it takes years and years of telling stories, I guess, and, like, even though you might think, well, you know, that, that was easy, but you've been doing this for years, man, you know? Like, I mean, I mean it, 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 was, it was a tool that I'm, I'm used to, hmm. And uh, and for me, it was it was also a exciting um, kind of you know e explaining charcoal to everybody mm. Mm. for the purposes of something very different, mm. and then and then um, seeing it turned around fresh for me. So, mm. but instantly recognisable, of course. Yeah. yeah so. Um, yeah, and also you know, you know, in in, in the in the VR environment, you you get, not only get to see charcoal differently, 
but um, you, you get to see it at at, at, at different scales and and there's a like a distance to it because you're in VR and there's a, a nearness to it it's right there and sometimes other times it's far away but it's still charcoal and, uh, and that was the point that, that um, Oscar was uh, you know kind of impressing on me very early in the process that you know this is charcoal we want to make sure. make this about the whole project was still about drawing. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have another question. Hi, Vernon. <laughs> um, now you've had a taste of your uh, your own artwork in VR. Would you see yourself doing any more VR projects? Oh, my my, my head is full of them now. <laughs> <laughs> Correct answer. So there's not enough VR companies to kind of work with now. <laughs> yeah. More VR. There you go. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I might, my, my um, yeah, I just start, even sitting here, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, could do that, could do that. <laughs> and just, like, um, <clears throat> the, the faces, like my face that was moulded over a model, a digital model there that, that Kalonika showed in her talk, um, that was one of the very first things that uh, Vertov showed me and the, the very first day, that's what I walked into. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's my drawing. And I recognised it as my drawing, but, mm. yeah. And then the, then Kalonika just explained uh, what, what the process was, and I was thinking, oh, got to get me more of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of terrifying from my perspective to be like, here's this That's right, you, you, you were, you were quite terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I but I had the quite quite the opposite act, uh, reaction. I think I thought the, I thought oh wow this is amazing. So. Well, it's um, our experience working here at Acme with lots of different artists, and sometimes <coughs> you, you just become aware that artists who have a really great practice, who are pretty secure in their practice, make really great collaborators because they're confident enough to open up and work with colleagues. You know. It can often be at first you think oh, I'll be too intimidated to ask this artist to kind of share their marks with us but you know if people have a strong practice often they can collaborate in a really great way people like Sean Tan you know because they they know what they're about and what the heart of their work is and so they have that confidence which means that people like Kalonika can come in and bring it to life in a different medium in a really successful collaboration yeah well I wasn't I wasn't afraid of um you know, animation or video or no. anything like that. But Colonica was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, do we have any other questions? Just, I'm not exactly clear on the process. So, was there any scanning involved, or or did you literally recreate every stroke of the original? It was kind of a Frankenstein. So, um, with the swatches Vernon made, we'd scan a stroke, but then make that stroke do other things, if that makes sense. Like, that stroke is now this entire house, that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, I, I realised that um, you could drag a, grab a stroke that was, say, this long and this wide and stretch it out and you could not only stretch it out to be very thin you could stretch it out to be very long 
and you could also in VR you can go in right in close on it and and have that be something entirely different and uh, and so that's uh, all of that I, I find in, incredibly exciting for the technically minded in the audience we didn't stretch them right we <laughs> tile them so <laughs> if you know what I mean yeah but but I mean that that's <laughs> the, the, the point I'm making is that that that's what that's what you can do mm. yeah. you know and you can you can not only grab a stroke like that but you can flip it on its side and and, and approach it from the end you know and that that sort of thing and ride along it <laughs> you know and uh, yeah so all of that is is really exciting for me I think so. um, do we have any other questions hi do you have any um, feedback yet from people who've had the opportunity to go into the world that were close to the actual event or similar events and what their reactions have been? No, um, although it's funny when my mum says, why are you doing that story? Mm. Yeah. What's so special about that? Oh, God. Yeah, so yeah, no. Because um, it's fairly new, so you know, we haven't, yeah. All the other people who, you know, obviously experienced things is really cool, but yeah. Well, I'm sure that will come. <laughs> yeah, once my mum will figure out how to use that thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Although we have road tested it on, yeah, someone around her But you haven't given her a go at the goggles. No, yeah. she's far trying to run my phone. She has no idea. <laughs> <laughs> my mum my wouldn't, uh, well, I don't know, I'd have to convince her that it's worthwhile, actually. Yeah. <laughs> You know, she'd probably just think, oh, it's 10 minutes out of my life, I'm never going to get back. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, that's, yeah. Your mum's the same. Same, yeah. <laughs> Even my, my parents, like my mum's watching something on TV and dad would go, oh, Pappy, what are you watching this crap for? And mum says, your son made that crap. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you know you've made it. <laughs> That's when you know it's all worthwhile. Yeah, it's like all those years. <laughs> that's who you want to impress now. Yeah. That's, that's how you know you're never going to get rich from it. <laughs> you never know. Um, I think on that slightly ambiguous note, um, <laughs> good we might um, finish up tonight. So please join me in thanking the artists from tonight. You've been listening to an Acme Conversations podcast. Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming